Welcome to the JCR, a Massey podcast where people and ideas intersect. I'm Cece Paris. I've been joined by Edward Shorter. He is the Jason A. Hanna Professor of the History of Medicine and the Temerty Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto, where he holds a cross appointment as Professor of Psychiatry. A social historian of medicine and clinical science, Professor Shorter has published histories of obstetrics and gynecology, the doctor-patient relationship, psychosomatic illness, and sexuality. He is an internationally recognized historian of psychiatry, and his research focuses on two themes, the history of psychiatric diagnosis and the history of psychopharmacology and other somatic treatments. He's the author of numerous books on the evolution of the discipline, including A History of Psychiatry, Before Prozac, The Madness of Fear, A History of Catatonia, and with Dr. Conrad Schwartz, he wrote the definitive book on psychotic depression, and with Dr. Max Fink, The Rise and Fall of Psychopharmacology. He is still actively involved in research on historic observation and understanding of psychiatric illness and its implications for diagnosis and treatment today. So today we're going to talk about underdiagnosed psychiatric illness and the forces that shape how diagnostics and treatment evolve over time. So my first question for you, Professor Shorter, is you began with really interesting work on sort of the history of medicine in general. For example, the doctor-patient relationship, but your, your research really began to focus on the history of psychiatry starting around the 90s. What, what really made this shift for you? Well, psychiatry is a kind of obvious subject for a, a social historian, uh, and it's because psychiatry, psychiatric illness, psychiatric diagnosis are so intertwined with larger social uh, trends. Take, for example, the diagnosis of hysteria, which doesn't exist anymore, and yet it was considered to be the most prominent uh, illness that women had from uh, about 1850 to uh, 1940. So you can only understand the rise and fall of the hysteria diagnosis by understanding uh, changed perceptions of women in society. How does it happen that we recognize that an illness actually isn't part of schizophrenia or hysteria or whatever the sort of umbrella is given? Well, it, the triumph of schizophrenia was really owing to the prestige of the initial clinicians who devised the diagnosis, namely Emil Kreplin, who was a professor of psychiatry in, in Germany, in uh, Heidelberg and Munich, and uh, Eugen Bleuler, who was the professor of psychiatry in Zurich, and they both uh, adopted the schizophrenia diagnosis. And these became master diagnoses because these were two of the most influential psychiatrists in the world. They didn't uh, attack the hysteria diagnosis in particular, uh, but it was a diagnosis that was mainly reserved for women, so that didn't matter so much. However, schizophrenia became the master, the master diagnosis uh, in anything involving uh, psychosis, or anything involving social withdrawal, lack of communication, inability to relate well to others, all that uh, became housed under the schizophrenia umbrella. One of the big diagnoses to be taken out from under schizophrenia and made an independent disease is catatonia. You are well known as a skeptic of both the DSM and the psychopharmaceutical industry. Would you be able to maybe speak on how these two sort of pillars of modern psychiatric care 
have shaped things over the past, let's say since, since mid-century, 20th century? Let's talk first about the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association currently in its fifth edition. Uh, and this is a purely American product. This uh, arose with DSM-1 in 1952 as the Americans felt emboldened to come up with their own system of diagnostics now that psychopharmacology was on the horizon and it was felt that there might be differential responsiveness to various agents depending on the diagnosis. And people started saying at the, in the American Psychiatric Association, listen, we've got to detach ourselves from the Europeans and uh, their uh, World Health Organization diagnoses and come up with diagnoses of our own. And so DSM and uh, psychopharmacology got off the ground at the same time, each one influencing the other. This has been really a gift from the gods for industry, because once you start getting these solid new diagnoses out there, like major depression, it becomes easy to uh, indicate specific products for them. The industry steps up to the plate and says, hey, we've got Prozac for major depression. How about that? Prozac, of course, was a billion, that's with a B, a billion dollar a year drug, simply because industry got this uh, incredible gift in the form of these apparently rock-solid diagnoses that represented specific diseases. There are over 250 of them in DSM-3, and a lot of these uh, diagnoses are differentially responsive to different agents. If only industry will show us the way, show us what responds to anxiety, show us what responds to depression, as though these are separate illnesses. In fact, mixed depression anxieties <clears throat> is the commonest illness in psychiatry. And uh, if you say, well, these are different diseases, they are co-occurring in this case, but you better treat them with two agents simultaneously. So rather than prescribing just one agent for mixed anxiety depression, we prescribe two, which imp improves the profit situation for industry considerably. So are you suggesting that the when it comes to the way diagnostics are done in North America, it's essentially a tail wagging the dog, where you know industry is like, we've got a treatment, and then you find something to apply it to? <clears throat> Industry is uh, constantly scanning the horizon for new diagnoses that it might be able to promote. This is very important in, pharma in pharmaceutical advertising to promote not a specific agent such as Prozac, but to promote a specific diagnosis and then let the clinicians discover on their own uh, that, hey, we've got a brilliant treatment for this. And so uh, depression has been heavily promoted as a diagnosis by the industry, major depression as a specific diagnosis. Uh, and hey, guess what? You know, we've got Prozac here for major depression, now that we've told you guys that it exists. Uh, Kepling didn't even acknowledge the existence of anxiety as a separate uh, illness. Uh, and now in DSM, we've got nine different kinds of anxiety each one of them differentially responsive to a, a different agent. And of course, this uh, suits industry uh, right to a T because it can promote these different anxieties as uh, diagnoses that the field should adopt. So it's very much pharmaceutically driven. So this is, I think it's also important here to 
to really be clear, like you are not against diagnosis. You are not against the, the field of psychiatry. You have very strong concerns about historical trends in terms of how, how diagnostic categories are formed. No, if, if you accept that uh, psychiatric illness is real and that it's heavily brain-driven, uh, you cannot possibly be against diagnosis because the brain comes up with different forms of uh, distress that the mind then registers as uh, illness. And these different uh, brain-driven illnesses uh, have to have different labels. Once you get into the area of psychosis, you've got the whole area of psychotic mood, which would be melancholia. And then you have the whole area of psychotic uh, disarray in thought, which would be classic schizophrenia, is uh, the inability to think clearly. It may not have anything to do with mood at all. So uh, these are examples of, of how, uh, for the major illnesses, you have to have separate diagnoses. You also have done quite, you're quite well known as a historian of electroconvulsive therapy. And in broad society, this is a very backwards, torturous, punitive treatment for psychiatric patients. Yet, as you have uh, made very clear, also in your work with clinicians, that in fact is actually quite an effective treatment. What were the driving forces in this sort of stigmatization of ECT? Uh, ECT was uh, originated in 1938, and for the next 20 years, it had a relatively non-controversial uh, history. It was uh, fairly widely used without a lot of controversy for sure. And then the hippies discovered it and the hippies had an instinctive fondness for psychotherapy because it somehow uh, was wonderful and they had an instinctive uh, aversion to pumping 120 volts of electricity into people's brains. And uh, it was the, this original aversion to ECT that originated in the 1960s that resulted in the, in the almost complete loss of ECT. In the 1970s, it looked as though ECT was about to go off the boards, so heavily was it stigmatized, but it didn't go off the boards because it can be life-saving. Uh, there are major illnesses, such as psychotic depression, that don't respond at all to psychotherapy and that respond poorly to medication uh, and that respond exquisitely to ECT. ECT is clearly the treatment of choice in some of the major illnesses, such as mania, psychotic depression, melancholia. And uh, it was the awareness of the field that we have to keep this backstop intact that prevented psychiatry as a whole from rejecting ECT in the way that psychosurgery was rejected. I'm wondering, like, with ECT... We know it works. Do we know how it works? No. Uh, its mechanism is still very obscure. But what we do know is that it is the most effective treatment in psychiatry. It's not just an effective treatment. It's the most effective treatment. And it has relatively few side effects. So it's been a kind of tragedy that it's been so heavily stigmatized in the community. And some of the stigma has rubbed off under the profession. So not all psychiatrists are willing to prescribe ECT which uh, is a form of malpractice, actually, to deny patients the right to be treated with uh, genuinely effective treatments. 
are there like are there limits to what ECT can man- handle when it comes to very the very serious psychiatric disorders? Well, ECT uh, does not have a long history of success in schizophrenia. If 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 your patient's major problem is some kind of thought disorder, the inability to think in a straightforward, linear way, uh, ECT would not be the treatment of choice. It's mainly for mood disorders, but uh, very often in psychotic illness, mood disorders are involved as well. And so psychotic patients are certainly sent for ECT uh, without it necessarily being the first-line treatment. For serious depression, where the patient is at risk of suicide, ECT is clearly the first-line treatment. How long-term would the effects of ECT be for somebody who's suffering from serious depression? Uh, ECT does not have a lot of side effects. Uh, It does have a mild and transitory effects on laying down fresh memories or recalling the recent past. And this is transitory. You get over it relatively quickly, aside from headaches. ECT has almost no side effects. That's why it's such a tremendous treatment, because a lot of the uh, pharmacological treatments of depression have just a ton of side effects. And to choose one of those, um, knowing that they aren't as effective and they are much more toxic than ECT, would almost be an act of malpractice. You've written about sort of this idea of like stigma. So the stigma of ECT, but also the stigma of medication and what medication does to a person. would you be willing to maybe sort of expand on that a bit of like what, you know, we're all taking drugs now. We all take drugs. So where, where, does, where would stigma come from? I think that the stigma attached to psychopharmacology has receded almost to the vanishing point. The stigma attaching to ECT, by contrast, is still very real. And at a cocktail party, you would not pridefully announce to uh, your interlocutor that you had just had ECT that morning. Uh, whereas you could say, well, you know, I've been on Prozac for a while and uh, seems to be going, things seem to be going okay. Uh, that could become the subject matter of uh, a conversation. ECT it would definitely not be the subject matter of a conversation at a cocktail party. I would love to meet the person who is genuinely excited to tell me about their ECT at a cocktail party. I feel like that would be a very interesting conversation. <laughs> Well, I guess just more on like a personal level, you've worked very closely with cl- clinicians. Have you <coughs> ever had the opportunity to work closely with patients? No. I do have a role to play in terms of pointing out uh, on a historical basis, what are the more effective treatments in psychiatry, what are the less effective treatments, and when called upon to do so, I do share those insights with clinicians, but I don't share them with patients. Let's maybe dial back right to the beginning. Uh, in the past, you know, a condition like hysteria was literally about like an organ in the body that was being affected. Um, and we know that, you know, a lot of psychiatric, is, psychiatric illness is a literal brain disease, that there is something functionally wrong in the brain. Um, are there any conditions where looking at other um, other areas of the body would help clarify what's happening in terms of somebody's depression or somebody's mania or somebody's psychosis? Well, there are different organ diseases that can produce psychiatric illness. Uh, liver disease, for example, can have uh, mental illness as a consequence. 
as the uh, toxins coming from the disordered liver affect their brain. So yeah, there is a whole uh, area of uh, symptomatic psychiatry, it's called, that is seen as being uh, bodily driven, not necessarily brain driven. But there are many other areas of psychiatry that are brain driven and where the other organs aren't involved. And then there's a whole uh, area of psychiatry that is nothing driven. It's not driven by anything. And yet the symptoms are very real and distressing. A lot of anxiety. Uh, it's hard to identify somatic pathology in various forms of anxiety. And yet for the patients, these forms are, are very real and they respond readily to treatment. So uh, it's a, a question, it's an issue that has a number of different layers in it. Would you say that your practice is very informed by data? Um, the only uh, data available in psychiatric practice are subjective data that come out of the patient's mouth, in a sense. And so it's very important for patients to be able to articulate their internal states enough so that you can make an assessment. Uh, it's hugely important to figure out, do we have melancholia here? And if so, uh, the clinical issue is suicide. And you as a clinician urgently need to know that so that you can admit the patient uh, to a, uh, an inpatient unit where he or she can be watched or where you can urgently initiate therapy that will somehow uh, take the bite off that melancholia and reduce the risk of suicide. So these are crucial decisions that are entirely informed by what the patient is telling you. So it's probably not an accident that psychiatric uh, practice tends to be mainly uh, based on the middle classes rather than the working classes. Uh, working class people often have difficulty articulating their internal states, even though they can be just as much at risk of major illnesses as middle class people can be. It's uh, harder for them to uh, receive competent treatment. That's an interesting thing you bring up about class as sort of a barrier to appropriate care. Are there ways when you're looking at somebody, like are there physical cues that are able to help diagnose certain conditions? Are these things that have been understood? Uh, melancholia has all kinds of physical cues associated with it. There are clinicians who say, I can make a diagnosis of melancholia the moment the patient walks into the room. So apparent is it from uh, his or her face, uh, gait, the kind of stiffness or awkwardness of gait, uh, the immobility of the features, uh, the, uh, the facial mask that goes with uh, many kinds of melancholia. All of these are physical signs of illness that an experienced clinician will pick up on immediately. And it's very important in terms of making the right diagnosis to be able to recognize these signs. Can the DSM be salvaged? No. The DSM is uh, irretrievably broken. It was a consensus document that arose as a result of a bunch of guys sitting around the table and basically horse trading. Hey, I'll give you uh, hysteria if you'll give me social anxiety. That doesn't mean that either hysteria or social anxiety exist as independent illnesses. They arose as a result of negotiation and compromise. And the DSM is just filled with diagnoses like that, that are really um, scientific artifacts rather than representing rock-solid illness entities. Uh, so in my view, the whole DSM should be thrown out and started over again. 
the DS, DSM was the work of the American Psychiatric Association, which is a trade guild. It's not a scientific organization. Uh, a, a genuine scientific organization, such as NIMH, or the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, should uh, go back to ground zero and say, just a second, let's put all this DSM nonsense out of our minds and say, what are the basic illness entities here? And uh, how can we classify them? What do you think the likelihood of that happening in the next 20 years might be? Well, DSM is uh, held upright by the pharmaceutical industry because there are all these billion-dollar diagnoses in there, such as major depression or social anxiety, that have resulted in just uh, tons of profits for the industry. So they are not going to sit by while a bunch of uh, geeks from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm say, wait a minute, let's, is there such a thing as uh, major depression? Is depression actually a standalone illness? Maybe it occurs mainly in connection with anxiety. And uh, if that's the case, uh, there may be other agents out there that are suitable for combination uh, depression and anxiety. And so this is the kind of uh, conversation that in industry does not want to see taking place. These are billion-dollar diagnoses, and industry does not want to see them go away. Yeah, if, uh, if you get somebody to be taking three pills a day for the rest of their life, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good customer. Yes, that's right. Um, psychopharmacology has, has earned billions of dollars in profits for the pharmaceutical industry, uh, but that's not necessarily redounded uh, to the benefit of patient care. Um, are there medications you think that are very uh, promising and strong in terms of uh, the evidence for actually helping to treat patients? Oh yeah, there are new medications that are coming along. Like, um, psychedelic drugs are now all getting a very close inspection uh, for their usefulness in the treatment of mood disorders of various kinds. And they've been showing a lot of promise Ketamine, for example, uh, isn't yet in the official pharmacopoeia. It's still seen as an experimental drug, but there's no doubt that ketamine is uh, much more effective than any of the drugs that are currently accepted in the pharmacopoeia. For, for what type of illnesses? Uh, mood disorders. Mood disorders. That's incredible to me because ketamine is, uh, is an old drug as well with a long history of safety as an anesthetic. Um, even among people who abuse it recreationally, the, the physical harms are quite minor compared to a lot of other drugs, including alcohol. Yeah, all of the, all of the psychedelics have uh, big potential uses in psychiatry. None of them has been accepted into the official pharmacopoeia uh, for uh, medical treatment of any kind. Uh, psilocybin is still a street, a tre a street drug. With the with psychedelic research right now, this is really cool that we sort of got into this because it really is at the forefront. Um, yet at the same time, these sort of cultural baggage that comes with the hippies who really, you know, got into it in the first place. That um, a lot of interesting research is at risk because of very poor boundaries, a very sort of like a poor understanding of. Well, I don't think anybody's going to ban our research into psychedelics unless. Uh, there is some major history of abuse, which there hasn't been so far. And the patient response to psilocybin, ketamine, etc., has been very good, very gratifying. 
And I think there's every prospect that these drugs will be incorporated into the official pharmacopoeia, and that would very much uh, be in the interest of uh, patient care. So let's hope that that happens, but it uh, hasn't happened yet. So as somebody who has done some psychedelics, I find it hard to think of somebody who's in an active, active state of mental illness, receiving psychedelic treatment, and then just going home. So is this where um, like psychiatric treatment and psychotherapy need to come back together again? Well, I'm not sure what the optimum mode of administering psychedelic treatment is, whether, you, whether this is best done in an inpatient setting, where they don't just go home after they've had the treatment, or whether uh, it's done under strict clinical supervision, where you have a, a nurse who comes calling around the patient's home, or whether you have some other uh, effort to uh, ring fence the uh, psychological consequences of abusing a psychedelic drug. But it is clear that psychedelics have a role in psychiatry. There is, in my mind at least, no doubt about that at all. That's very unexpected and cool to hear. <laughs> I know that in my community it's something that people have been really waiting to see. Um, you know, PTSD is a huge indication for that. Um, and fascinating to hear that, that you know, the field is looking at other, other uh, indications like mood disorders, which I never would have thought of that. Well, the diagnosis of mood disorders has become so widely expanded that just about anything could be seen as a mood disorder of one kind or another. And so a lot of that is going to be responsive to psychedelics, for sure. That doesn't mean that things like melancholic depression are going to respond to psychedelics, but there are just so many different shades of depressive illness that some of them will. I'm going to close this off by saying thank you, Professor Shorter, for speaking with me today about these fascinating and deeply relevant histories to today. I'm Zisi Powers. You've been listening to The JCR, a production of the Junior Fellows at Massey College at the University of Toronto.